Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. It's a Wednesday, February 24th. I'm Ashley Banks, and here's what's coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. We'll discuss civil rights leaders calling on Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We'll also speak with Daniel Prude's family lawyer about the New York's attorney general decision to not indict the officers involved in his death. And we'll also speak with Kim Fox, Illinois State's attorney, about a new bill that will eliminate cash bail. Let's get started.
Today, civil rights leaders called on the U.S. House of Representatives to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, a critical step to holding law enforcement accountable for unconstitutional and unethical conduct. Now, leaders from the NAACP, National Urban League, National Action Network, and several other groups spoke during a media briefing earlier today. Take a look. The video of the killing of George Floyd held a mirror up to a truth about the American legal system. It showed us in the most, most dark and irrefutable way that there are deep, fundamental problems with how this country allows law enforcement to intimidate, abuse, torture, and kill unarmed black people. We rightly focus on the pain and suffering of George Floyd when we see that video. But we must also focus on what we can see in the officer who killed George Floyd. Because Officer Derek Chauvin in that video, for most of it, is looking directly at us. He is ignoring the pleas of a black man dying, calling for help and for his mother. His hands are in his pockets. He knows he's being filmed and he looks directly at the camera because he has no fear. He has no fear that anything will happen to him that there will be any accountability for his actions. If Congress fails to act to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, it will prove Officer Derek Chauvin right. It will reinforce that in encounters with black people, law enforcement officers are above the law. When Officer Chauvin looks into the camera as he kills George Floyd, he is looking at us. He is daring us to prove him wrong. And we're calling on Congress to prove him wrong and move forward the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. For many of us, the searing pain on display in Minneapolis and across the country last summer has not gone away. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, Tony McDade, and so many others who have lost their lives to state violence deserve more. In their honor, we are here today demanding bold action. Today, we are nearing the end of Black History Month and approaching the one-year anniversaries of the police violence that led to nationwide protests last year. And still, no major legislation has been signed into law to address police violence against the Black community. This year must be different. We are pleased that House leadership intends to hold a vote on the Justice and Policing Act next week to recognize the urgency of this matter. The civil rights community urges members of the House to support passage of this bill and for Senate leadership to take it up in short order and build upon it. Congress, it's just time to act. Um, we must understand and remember the urgency and why we need the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed um, as now. Um, our Black Women's Roundtable and Essence 2020 poll and our Unity 2020 election poll uh, revealed that criminal justice and policing reform were one of the top three issues that Black voters voted about, especially Black women and our young people, that we wanted the president and this Congress to address. It's no, no coincidence the poll also showed the eradication of systemic racism was also a top issue, while ending COVID-19 was also there.
the voters spoke in November and in Georgia in January. And it's time for the Congress to deliver what the people voted for and again pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Now, more than ever, our nation is dealing with so many crises, but we can focus, we can walk, we can chew gum at the same time. And we're talking about life and death and the need to end the unjust killings of black people. Our young people took to the streets almost longer than any other protest in, 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 in history. They spoke, the world spoke. Everyone said it's time to act. So we implore the Congress to pass the Justice Floyd Policing Act. Take up your leadership and your servant to the people and respond and vote for the George, uh, pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act now. No entity, no individual, no person sworn to protect and uphold the law should operate above the law that they are being sworn and to protect. For many law enforcement officers across the country, they serve as well. They provide the necessary protections. But for African-Americans, we have far too many individuals who take their oath of duty for granted because they know they have a special privilege under our law that they can operate above. And it has caused harm in our communities for far too long. Passage of this act will level the playing field of expectations so that our young people, if they're walking home from work, will not be harassed. That our young people driving while black would not have a level of concern that currently exists in our community. Support for the provisions of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act ranged from 74% who favor the banning of chokeholds to 91% who favor a requiring of body cameras for all civilian interactions. Every provision of the act when tested has supermajority support amongst the American people. It is not in doubt, and it could not be any clearer that the people of this nation want the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Americans voted for it. And Americans are demanding this kind of change. It should not have taken this long to achieve. And it's taken a long time. But we are appreciative of the members of the House who led this effort, Karen Bass and others, as well as the members of the House who stood up and voted for this bill as it passed the House of Representatives last year. It is time for action in 2021, and we demand such action. This bill, in our judgment, is as important as the legislation that came out of the 60s civil rights movement. We've demonstrated all last summer, all over the country, culminating in the March on Washington, August 28th, where over 200,000 people peacefully marched, no arrest, no incident. And we explicitly said, with the family of George Floyd there, the family of Breonna Taylor, the family of Ahmed Aubrey, all of the families there with us to lead the march with Martin Luther King III and I, that we wanted two things done, the George Floyd bill and 
the John Lewis voting bill. Of course, we also support H.R. 1. The Senate and Congress must stand and meet this moment like the Senate and Congress met the moment in the 60s. The Civil Rights Act resulted after a summer like last summer. The Voting Rights Act resulted after Selma. For the Senate and the Congress to miss this time, to really deal with the issue of policing and deal with the issue of accountability, it is not anti-police any more than the Civil Rights Act was anti-white. It was about correcting those that acted wrongly and that behaved wrongly. The Voting Rights Act was not anti-Southerners. It was anti those that would deny the people the right to vote. The, Floyd, the George Floyd bill is not an anti-police bill. It's an anti-bad policing, criminal policing bill. And this is the time and this is the place to do it. In a couple of weeks, we'll be going to Minneapolis for the jury selection of the police officer that lynched George Floyd with his knee. The family will have to sit there and relive this. I would hope that they would be able to sit there knowing that the laws have changed and that George was not lynched in vain and that the Senate of 2021 has the same backbone and integrity that the Senate had in 1964. The times call for demonstration and legislation. This is the legislation that we need to see passed. Joining me now with more on this is Melanie Campbell. She's the executive director and chief executive officer at the, of the National Coalition on Black Civic, Civic Participation. Thank you so much for joining me, Melanie. Now, let's start first with why is it consequential that this bill be passed? Melanie, I'm going to have you stop for a second. We can't hear you. Melanie, you can start up again. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. And apologize for that. I was I had I think I was on mute. No worries. COVID life, COVID life, right? Um, but the the reality is that that's what our people voted for. That's what we were in the streets for. Our young people are on the streets. It's not the only solution, but it is a very tangible bill that was passed last year and should have been passed by the Senate. But it was one of those bills that sat in Mitch, uh, former uh, leader Mitch McConnell's office in the Senate. And so there's a and so election happened. Folks voted, elected people who said they supported it. Uh, the Congress changed power. Black people showed up. Black women, black men, young people showed up. And so what we're saying is it's time to act on the things that people voted for. And when it comes to policing, criminal justice reform, it's, it was the number for our the research that we did as well. Uh, we know from the, our Black Women's Roundtable Essence Poll uh, that that issue has been the issue of criminal justice and policing reform has been top uh, top three issue for the last three years. In uh, um, election day, uh, we did a poll of forty six hundred black people, uh, young, old, everything in between, and that was still number two issue. So we know that, and so what we're doing and what we're elevating and uh, supporting is that it's time to start. They've gotten past some of these things that were blocking. It's time to legislate. 
as Reverend Sharpton said. And that's one of those key issues that we need to move on because it is a life or death issue. People are still getting killed out here unjustly, not by all police. We know that, but it's too many that are and, and that we need to put the, the protections in place to protect our people from having, and especially our young people and our even children from dying at some of those police who, who are bad actors and, and that know that they, they, they will have a day in court if they're not doing the right thing. Melanie, like you're saying, this is life or death. But even if Congress were to pass this bill, do you really believe that it would prevent unjustified killings of unarmed African-Americans, like in the case of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? Well, Breonna Taylor was a no-knock warrant, right? So if you didn't have a no-knock warrant, if you had, then that's um, uh, something that comes off uh, as as uh, something that people can't, uh, law enforcement cannot do from a federal sense, yes, right? And so... They're, the whole idea of accountability, police being held accountable, but to have the ability to say that you don't, um, you have a, a, a immunity uh, because you're a police officer, of course, gives people the the, the, the notion that no matter what, uh, I'll be okay because I have this protection, and no one should be, nobody's above the law, including people who were sworn to protect, and so. Anything we could, it's not going to solve all the problems, but surely we need more than uh, something that, depending on what state you are in or depending on what city you're in, you may, may be better protected than others. Because it's happening in rural America, urban America, and it's, and it's been historic anyhow, right? When it comes to why even, I don't want to go that far back, the history is what it is. Policing was started to make sure that we stayed enslaved, you know, you know and, 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 and the like. And so there's always been a challenge in the first place. When we were out here uh, in the, in, well, our, our predecessors in the 60s, marching in the 60s, they sent the police and the police dogs at us. And so here we are in 2021. It is it is so past time and to deal with. And so this is one of those things that was put on the books and we just need to get it passed. Other things that need to be done, but there's no need and reason to wait. Melanie, like you're saying, um, a lot of people would agree with you, right? It's 2021. We shouldn't still be having these conversations. We shouldn't still be talking about these issues. But yet here we are. So let's say that or what do you think is the likelihood that Congress will pass this bill? Oh, well, I, well I, I, I'm I say cautiously optimistic that we we will. Uh, the first thing that has to happen is to get it out of the House again. Uh, uh, and then, of course, it moves to the Senate. And, and then we'll cross that vision because we know they're two different bodies. But I think the first order of business is to get it out there. The Congressional Black Caucus under Karen Bass, uh, who had been leading that, along with uh, Congresswoman Joyce Bader, who's now the new chair of the CBC, they are moving that forward. The CBC members and other uh, progressives who support it and get it out of the out of the House again, so it can move over to the Senate, so it can end up on President uh, now President uh, Biden's desk for signature. All right, Melanie. For those who may not be as hopeful as you are, are there talks or next steps that would take place if Congress were not to pass this act? I think we need to be laser focused on getting this bill passed. I am not of the mindset to sit here and say, well, let's. What if we don't? We did all, we've jumped so many hoops. Just the fact that we were able to vote in 2020. So if, if if we know that's what we want, we have to go after it. Collectively, individually, speak up. I don't care if you're in a red state or a blue state or a purple state. We have to make the demands 
uh, to make sure that things pass. I believe, and this is something that I that our organization believes, and that's that uh, they need to be looking at how uh, this whole idea of um, you know how they pass the bills and, and get rid of the filibuster. In my opinion, that's that's Melanie's opinion, and 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 and, and the reason is that you the whole idea that. Uh, you have to have a 60 vote threshold on so many things, and this we need action. The things that are impacting our communities, uh, black communities, brown communities, poor communities, uh, those uh, less fortunate in this country, there is need for bold changes to take place with this, with George Floyd justice and policing, with voting rights reform, with this COVID-19. So much is, 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 is impacting people's lives, and it is life or death issues that we're talking about, that we need the ability for things to take place and happen so that, that our communities uh, can not just survive, but we can thrive. And Melanie, as you've been saying, police officers also need to be held accountable in order for the George Floyds and Breonna Taylors, uh, for these things to not occur in the future. Now, if anything, what have congressional members been saying about this bill? Well, so to the congressional black caucus members uh, have been speaking up, and I believe they're about to and move to actually put the bill uh, back in motion. And so those are the conversations we've had. I've not heard any conversation myself about anybody not supporting it at this point. But do you know when that would happen, just to give us some perspective or timeline? Saying, I think it's happening this week, I believe, I'm, you know, but very soon. Okay, we'll leave it right there. Thank you so much, Melanie Campbell. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. All righty, moving forward, New York's Attorney General announced Tuesday that a grand jury has declined to indict the officers responsible for Daniel Prude's death. Now, on March 23rd, 2020, Rochester officers were responding to a call of a man acting erratically when they encountered Prude. Prude was having a mental breakdown and was walking through the streets naked. When officers approached him, officers then detained him and placed a mesh bag over his head in order to stop him from spitting. An officer then pushed Prude's face against the ground and another officer pushed his knee into Prude's back. These two officers held Prude down for two minutes. As a result, Prude fell unconscious and needed to be on life support. He died a week later. Attorney General Letitia James, who took over the investigation into Prude's death, says she and her team were not able to persuade the grand jury that the officers involved committed a crime. Joining me now to continue this discussion is Daniel Prude family's attorney, Elliot Doby Shields. Elliot, thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you were joining me for... Something better, you know, under better circumstances. But many people, including the Rochester community, are wondering how there wasn't enough evidence to prove that these officers use excessive force against Daniel Prude and should thus be held accountable. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of things that we can look to to understand what happened, however. Um, now... Attorney General Tish James came out yesterday and said she was very disappointed with the grand jury's decision not to indict the RPD officers. Um, however, if you take a close look at the subject matter experts that she presented to the grand jury, it's no wonder why they didn't secure an indictment. Um, her office hired Gary Vilke, uh, and he's a well-known uh police defense expert. 
in cases in federal court where uh, attorneys like me who bring civil rights cases against officers that kill unarmed people, Gary Vilke is one of the go-to experts to explain, to defend police officers when they kill someone. And he came in and instead of testifying on behalf of Tish James's office that consistent with the medical examiner's report that determined his death was caused by positional asphyxia, Gary Vilke came in and said, no, 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 his death was actually a result of excited delirium. Now, excited delirium is not a medical term. It's a made-up term. Uh, it's a made-up, it's not a real medical condition. It's a made-up term that's only been around for about 10 years. Basically, it's used as a wastebasket as law enforcement, uh, meaning that everybody that creates any problems or struggles with the police and that ends up hurt or dead is thrown into this wastebasket. So, you know, it's very disappointing. Um, honestly, after reading the report that she released, it doesn't seem like her office actually tried to secure an indictment in this case. And honestly, I'm outraged at, at what her report says. Well, Elliot, with what you're saying, though, if they use this guy who has a history of defending police, do you believe that this was just a setup for them to lose the case, essentially? That is essentially what I believe after reading her report. Now, to the attorney general's credit, she did get the judge uh, in the Daniel Proof case to agree to unseal the grand jury minutes. So soon, I guess, we'll get a better sense of exactly what evidence they presented to the grand jury. But based on the public report that they released, it honestly does not seem like her office even attempted to secure an indictment against these officers. Elliot, this is and you know what that. Go ahead. I'll let I'm you sorry, finish your ahead. statement. Go ahead, Elliot. You know, what I was going to say is uh, this shows that what we need is a change in the system. What we need is to get a truly independent prosecutor in cases where police kill unarmed citizens, because over and over again, this is the result that we get. And while the attorney general is independent of local law enforcement, she's still the top law enforcement official in the state of New York. What we need is a truly independent person to be appointed in these cases, somebody that has no connection to the government at all, like an independent attorney or somebody from a different state. Because if this is the system that was supposed to be set up to fix what happened after the after the Staten Island District Attorney failed to secure an indictment of pa Daniel Pantaleo following the death of Eric Garner, it's obviously still not working. And Elliot, like you're saying, we see this time and time again, right, where officers are, are caught on tape using excessive force, killing victims who aren't armed, like in the case of Daniel Prude here. And you're basically saying that if they were to use independent prosecutors, maybe the outcome would be different. And obviously, Elliot, you are not the first person to think this. But I, I, in your opinion, why do you think that's not something that's being pursued? You know, uh, honestly, what happened was there was a push following what happened, the failure to secure an indictment of Daniel Pantaleo. Uh, for a truly independent prosecutor. And Governor Cuomo, to his credit, tried to 
jump in and make this process occur more quickly by passing an executive order. Executive Order 147 in New York, you know, at the time there there was a split in the state legislature and we would not have been able to get a law passed to appoint an independent prosecutor. And so uh, Governor Cuomo did the next best thing, passed this executive order, which was signed into law last summer, along with a series of other reform efforts in New York. But if you can't secure an indictment in this case, then it's obviously not working. And now is the time to push for these reforms. As we see this happening over and over again around the country, as there's more and more body camera video showing unarmed black people killed by law enforcement officers, now is the time to push for this change. Elliot, I want to know from you, how is the family responding to the grand jury's decision? They're heartbroken. They're devastated. It's hard for them to understand all this anger that I'm feeling and I'm trying to express on their behalf is because I've spent hours on the phone with them over the last couple of days. You know, Joe Prude is absolutely torn up. He's just been crying. He can't sleep. He can't understand why he met with Letitia James and she told him, look, there was nothing we could do. It was excited delirium. That's unacceptable to the family. That's unacceptable to me. And that should be unacceptable to everyone in the Rochester community and around the country because it's a made-up junk science term that has no basis in fact. It's got no basis in any peer-reviewed medical literature. And it's literally just an excuse used by law enforcement when they kill unarmed people. So we need to debunk this unscientific excuse once and for all. Is the family planning to take next steps in order to see justice? Well, so there is a um, lawsuit seeking uh, damages in federal court that was already filed. Um, the attorneys uh, for some of the children are spearheading that effort at this moment. And uh, there's additional litigation that's moving forwards in state court related to some records requests that we did that um, – where we requested the original video of the incident along with communications so we can really understand the cover-up that happened from the city's perspective because it took months and months. We first requested the video and all of the paperwork related to the incident on April 3rd, just days after Dan Prude died, and the city just ignored our open records request. They ignored it for months, and then when they did finally fulfill our request, they certified that they had no communications related to what happened to Mr. Prude. Come to find out, after we released the video, they've got hundreds and hundreds of pages of communications related to the cover-up, where internally within the Rochester Police Department, they're saying things like, it would be a misrepresentation to conflate this incident with what happened to other unarmed black people around the country, and it could lead to violent blowback in our community. And that's all that they were concerned about. They weren't concerned about transparency. All that they were concerned about was how it would look to the community and covering it up and not releasing the video so that they wouldn't face the protests uh, that eventually occurred as a result of them covering up the incident. 
So it's absolutely outrageous. We're still moving forwards with that because they falsely certified that they didn't have any of these communications. And then they admitted after we released the video that, hey, actually, we have several hundred pages of, of these communications. So we're moving forwards with that. And then there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were injured at these protests. And my office personally represents uh, over 100 people that, that, were, that were seriously injured by law enforcement. Uh, all of these people came out to try to seek justice for Daniel Prude, um, to tell the police what you did isn't right and the system needs to change. And how did the law enforcement in the Rochester community respond? They shot him in the face with pepper balls. They tear gassed people. They violently arrested them, threw them to the ground. They brought dogs out to these protests. They corralled people on bridges, told them to disperse when there was nowhere to go. And then they shot them. They threw them on the ground and they beat them up. And that's how the police respond when people demand change. It's honestly hard to comprehend how in this day and age, we're allowing this to happen, but we're not going to allow it to happen. We're going to hold them accountable in court. So, And that's what you're doing, Elliot. You're trying to hold them accountable in court. And the people in Rochester started taking to the streets yesterday, demanding that the police still be held accountable despite the grand jury's decision. But we're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much, Elliot. Greatly appreciate you coming on today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right, I'm going to open it up to my panel now. We have A. Scott Bolden, former chair of the National Bar Association. Robert Patillo, executive director of the Rainbow Push Coalition, Peachtree Street Project. And Monique Presley, legal analyst and crisis manager. Thank you guys for joining me today. Now, I want to start with you, Robert. What are your thoughts on the grand jury's decision to not indict the officers involved in Daniel Prude's death? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing a lot of international press lately. So uh, earlier this week, I was on um, uh, Iranian TV uh, talking about the uh, genocide going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo, nearly three million people displaced, uh, child soldiers, so on and so forth. Uh, today, I was on uh, Egyptian TV talking about the abuses of the uh, the regime there since the U.S. intervention 10 years ago, removing the Mubarak regime, uh, putting in Morsi, Morsi, who was thereafter deposed, and their current crackdowns on the press and on human rights. And uh, over 100 organizations sent letters to the United Nations regarding the uh, Egyptian regime, regimes cracking down on human rights violations. We're going to have to do the same thing here in America. We're going to have to treat our government the same way that the Egyptians are treating their government, the same way that the Congolese are treating their government. Uh, one thing that happened during the 1960s was that our fight was put into the larger fight of decolonization um, internationally. So that at the same time we were marching in Selma and Montgomery, uh, you have the uh, wars going on in Angola, uh, Vietnam and uh, Laos. Across the colonized world, people were fighting back against oppressive regimes. The reason that George Floyd was such a iconoclastic figure last year was that people facing oppression all around the world felt that knee on their neck. This is why people in Hong Kong were marching in solidarity with George Floyd. This is why Iranians uh, had to go on lockdown because people were marching in solidarity with George Floyd. This is why wherever oppression was faced around the world, people were uh, marching in solidarity with George Floyd. 
And so when we see these things continue to happen here in America, not in a vacuum, not geographically uh, boxed off, it's not that this is just in the deep south or in um, one region, is a nationwide intergenerational issue that goes back to the foundational aspects of this country. And until we go before the United Nations and have international inspectors and international condemnation of the way that policing is done in black and brown communities in America, we will not have relief. As we said in the in the first block, uh, with, uh, with Ms. Campbell. Um, we have issues with our Congress right now, despite uh, months and months of protest and activism and turning out to the polls, we'll get the George Floyd policing bill through the House of Representatives, and then in the Senate, it's a crapshoot. So we're going to have to take it to a higher authority and appeal to the better angels of the world to condemn America for their treatment of African Americans and the uh, uh, the unceremonious extrajudicial killings of black and, uh, black and brown people men and women uh, at the hands of policing and hold us accountable by in the international court uh, international court until we change our ways because quite frankly America has shown that they love racism more than they love money because they're more than happy to pay out these settlements to families of tens of millions of dollars at a time. They love racism more than they uh, love elections. They'll be fine with losing elections if it means they can keep racism. So until we appeal to a higher authority to crack down on America, I don't think we're going to see changes anytime soon, but we do have to build that coalition and not see ourselves in a vacuum. Uh, build with our brothers in the Congo, build with those being oppressed in Egypt, build with those being oppressed across the Middle East and in China, uh, the genocide which is going on against Muslims there, uh, act in solidarity and work towards a common goal just as we did in previous generations. All right, Monique, what are your thoughts? So about Daniel Prude, um, I, had, I do have some thoughts. Attorney General James uh, released a statement regarding this case and the, the, her disappointment and the disappointment of her office and the fact that the grand jury made the decision to not bring charges here. Uh, she stated in there what we know to be true, that Mr. Prude was in the throes of, of a mental breakdown, mental distress at the time that this happened, and that the officers and, and the law system actually is what failed Mr. Prude and that we see over and over these laws that fail people who are in mental crisis that fail people who are black and brown and so what we what we have to do um, is understand that now our system of laws um, needs to be changed and the first step in that is the the bill that's before Congress right now uh, that's what has to happen and um, I, I I understand the frustration of the family's attorney, but I don't think uh, Attorney General James really is where you drop that frustration in that her office saw fit to bring charges um, to take it to the grand jury. They didn't have to, uh, and they presented, presented a comprehensive case, and now everything about that case is going to be released. So I think we'll see. We'll see whether it, there was a failing in her office or not. But what we know for sure is that the legal system is what needs to be changed. Now, Monique, you said that the attorney, his frustration was on the wrong person. Where do you think his frustration should have been? It's on the law itself. I mean, we've had these conversations over and over, Ashley. The laws as they are set up right now have been failing black folks 
brown folks too, but disproportionately black folks. So when we are looking at qualified immunity, when we are looking at a lack of laws surrounding the way people should be treated when there is mental illness and mental breakdown present, when we're looking at the way people are treated in impoverished communities, when we're looking at, frankly, the the racism and the implicit biases, not just of police officers, but of juries, which may have been what was at play here, we have to have steps in place that fix that. And the George Floyd Act is one of those very important steps in that process, but there are so many more that need to be done. Scott? Yeah, I agree with my colleagues. Uh, um, Letitia James is committed to the community. She and I were classmates, section mates at Howard Law School from 84 to 87. And so... I would disagree. I understand the frustration of the defense counsel, but this justice system worked in this case. She didn't present the case to the grand jury and present charges. She did an investigatory grand jury, and this is what the grand jury came back with, a juror, a grand jurors of her peers, and they were contributing uh, factors in his death. I mean, if you throw put the video back up, you see four or five officers, they put the spit bag on him, right? But who's missing from that picture, right? A mental health expert, because this was a mental health incident. It was not a criminal incident. It was not a police incident. It, there was no crime being committed other than by the police, of course. But that missing component was a mental health expert that to stand between this young man and the police. And so the George Floyd Act will answer all of these questions. Uh, I'm not worried about it passing in the House. George Floyd Act is going to run into some real serious issues on the Senate side because the Senate, when the Republicans were in control, had a bill that was a micro, that there was a uh, fraction of what this House bill uh, calls for right now. And we need every aspect of this House bill. Secondly, the hardest case to ever convict a, uh, in this country is to convict a police officer because they're the last line of defense between chaos and community. And black people and white people who sit as jurors find it difficult to do it, despite the overwhelming evidence and the video. And then let's not forget about the criminal justice system. I'm sorry, the civil justice system. The imperfections of the criminal justice system are going to take some time to prepare. And even if you repair, even if that legislation passes, we got to look at who we're giving guns and badges to, because it's their conduct and the complicity of their colleagues who know that they are bad actors or have bad judgment and won't report them, if you will, is what we're going to have to manage and deal with until we figure out a way to put guns and badges in the hands of responsible people. But there's a civil justice system. You know, if you criminally prosecute a bad-acting police officer, you cannot bring that person back, that loved one back. But, it, but in the civil justice system, you can certainly get paid, you certainly get discovery, you certainly get depositions, and it's really the only true mechanism to, in search of the truth, to find the truth and present a case to 12 jurors in most jurisdictions and have them pass on the judgment of these officers or these municipalities civilly and to award damages uh, to these families. It won't bring the, the loved one back who was the victim of police brutality and a police killing, but a criminal prosecution certainly doesn't bring the victim back either. And so I think we need to not forget and focus on there is a, 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 a pathway forward and always has been, and that's the civil justice system. You heard the defense attorney talk about that. 
keep an eye on that because whether they settle or they get a verdict, uh, that verdict or settlement should be in the millions of dollars. For sure. We'll bring the victim back, but it'll certainly uh, provide compensation for them. For sure, Scott. But, but just by... But just uh, by the way, for just the slightest amount of pushback on this, uh, you know, I've never had a case where a prosecutor couldn't get an indictment on it. When they can't get an indictment, they'll go back and they'll just pick another day to come back and cure the errors in the indictment. And quite frankly, I think in police shooting cases, we should in, we had the, a similar issue here in uh, in Georgia about 15 years ago with a man named Kenneth Walker, where they uh, could not get an indictment. I don't understand why these things aren't uh, presented in open court in a preliminary hearing where you can have uh, a judge rule on the record, whether or not there's enough evidence going forward, and the community is apprised of what happens uh, behind those closed doors and knows exactly, uh, knows exactly what's going on going forward. I, I, I think also that we wait for the federal uh, George Floyd at, but remember, we have state and local governments. You can address issues of police shooting and police killings on the state and local level. And those takes a whole lot less time than getting Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz to come around. Uh, these are your uh, city council people, your state representatives, your state senators, people who live in your community, and you can hold their feet to the fire just as much, because guess what happens normally when, uh, when mayors or other uh, officials want to crack down on police? You see police slowdowns, as we saw nationwide after the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey, and then then you see spikes in crime commensurate with the police uh, slowdowns, which was which puts politicians in danger. And their immediate response is to try to do another crackdown on crime with red dog units like uh, uh, and other things. So we have to start attacking this on the state and local level. Let's not take um, the civil uh, judgment as simply being enough, because as we've seen in places like Chicago, they will pay billions of dollars out in civil judgments as long as they can keep being racist and and. and in large parts of this country, it is more important to them to be able to kill black folks without consequence than any amount of money that they can pay out. So we have to start attacking on the state and local level as, while we wait for what happens in Washington. Monique, Scott, you want to And the power of the police union at the local level is just as strong. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's why you're going to have to be or go to the federal level. I agree with you, but I also think the police unions at the state legislatures and the city council are super strong at the local level and even harder to get uh, local elected officials to act appropriately. We'll go to Monique, then we have to move on. Oh, no, I'm good. You know, we, we've we said everything that needs to be said, I think. We have the power to make... Monique agrees with everything we said. That's all. <laughs> we, we have the power... We've said everything that needs to be said, whether I agree with it or not. Okay. Um, we have the power <laughs> to make the changes that need to be made, and we have it on the local, state, and federal level, and it's up to us to effectuate this change. We have to demand it in order for it to happen. All right, let's go to Georgia now, where Republicans continue to introduce bills aimed at disenfranchising black voters after they showed up in record numbers to elect two Democratic senators in January's runoffs. Now, today, the Georgia State Senate passed legislation that would require voters to submit a driver's license number, state identification card number, or a photocopy of an approved form of identification in order to vote absentee in the state. This comes after Georgia House Republicans presented a 48-page bill calling for several changes that would limit the time frame for early voting in the state. Joining me now to discuss this further is Senator Michael Doc Rett of the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. Thank you so much for joining me today, Senator. Now, let's see here. Are these bills that are being introduced here in Georgia, is this simply because Republicans lost the presidential election and the Senate race in Georgia. Is this some way retaliation? 
Well, I'd like to thank you for having me on the phone. Right now, I'm in between a committee meeting, and we may have an important vote. So if I have to go, you know, please excuse me. But to answer your question, you know, basically, things didn't work out for them. And now they're trying to change things to try and make it better for them. Just like, for for instance, the absentee voter vote, they used that for many years, and it worked well for them. But last year, when we used it and it was successful for us, now they want to add uh, added requirements in order for you to absentee vote. So, yes, you have a point there. Can we talk to you, Senator, how much of a threat that these bills pose to minorities in Georgia? Because some people, I don't think, get the bigger picture here. But can you just talk to how much of a threat it is for voters in the future? Well, well, it, make, it creates an extra hoop that they have to jump through, and particularly for elderly people who might have to try and find a way to get a copy of their ID or get a photo ID. So it creates an extra hoop in some cases that makes it a little more challenging for them to get out and vote. So let's say that all of these bills that have been presented are passed. Are there, I guess, plan B's in place for, you know, the, the black community to be well equipped, equipped to be able to get out and vote in the next election? Oh, yes. We got plans. We work with Fair Fight and other organizations. So we're ready to go and uh, could, I have to go and take a vote. I'm sorry. That's all right, now. Senator. You're busy. We thank you so mm -hmm. much for coming on today. Greatly appreciate it. All right. I want to throw it back to my panel now. So, guys, I want to talk to Scott first. Scott, what are your thoughts on all these bills that are being presented in Georgia to suppress minority votes, essentially? Well, they, they present them under what they call race-neutral terms, but they're not race-neutral because they have a disparate impact and are narrowly tailored to discriminate and force black people to vote in lesser numbers. We know that early voting, either by mail or drop box or absenteeism, made up 30 to 35, maybe more percent of the vote and made the difference. Those ballots were counted last. They weren't counted like the day uh, of voting. Uh, we know that the Republicans had three different votes and those three different votes, I'm sorry, three different audits of those results of the presidential election all came back fair and no fraud. And so these concerns by Republican legislatures are concerns not only raised by the president, but raised by them because they lost. They've told their constituents that, and now their constituents, now that they've created that doubt in their mind, are, are allegedly uh, have these Republican legislators reacting to what they told their constituents, which was part of the big Trump lie, if you will. And so as a result, uh, we need to be vigilant. They haven't passed both houses yet. It hasn't been signed by the governor. But as soon as it's signed by the governor, our civil rights organizations, our legal groups have got to begin challenging these laws if they become law, challenging this legislation now. The courts in North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin, and even Georgia uh, have been uh, leery and weary of these types of uh, uh, bills and legislation that have become law and have denounced them and reversed them and struck them down. But we've got to keep the pressure on, not only on the lobbying front, but on the litigation front, uh, if it ever gets signed, if these laws ever get signed by the governors of these states. Monique. 
This is why we can't, as the Bible says, afford to be, you know, at ease in Zion, because Georgia gets this really great, impressive victory. They literally snatched this mm-hmm. country from the depths of despair. But I mean, the devil is always busy. And so are these GOP legislators, frankly. Mm-hmm. So what, what has to happen is the same energy that it took, not just from the states like Georgia, from the individual cities and regions in Georgia, but national all the energy that it took in order for us to get two senators that gave us the advantage that we need in the U.S. Senate, we have to put that same backing behind what is happening now. And people, voting matters. We got to show up every time, vote from the top of the ticket all the way down to the bottom, because these things that are happening now aren't happening because of this past federal election and people who just went into office. These are are state and local legislators doing Mm -hmm. what they do best. And that is a system of oppression that has been around since slavery ended. Uh, So we have to do our part nationally. We can support organizations like Black Voters Matter that are bringing the lawsuits when there are issues like this that that suppress and oppress the vote. We can do our part to turn out the vote and to get elected officials out of office who desire uh, to have their own system of control in place and don't want to acknowledge the will of the people. So those are action steps that I think we can start on right now. Robert. Look, I, I got to apologize for Georgia and, and my people down here. Every time you hear about us, there's something crazy going on, whether it's Vernon Jones uh, crowd surfing <laughs> or Marjorie Taylor jo- uh, Taylor Green and her QAnon conspiracy. We always got something going on down here, and I'm, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, Florida used to be the crazy state, but Georgia you know, just kind of filtered its way up. Also, shout out to some of my pastors down in Lakeland, Florida, Eddie and Paula uh, Lake and uh, Rich, uh, Reverend Boss down there, because we might be coming to visit because there's too much crazy going on here. But uh, let's understand one thing. The Republicans are not going to stop. And the reason goes far deeper than Trump or Trumpism or the 2020 election is the question of demographics. And that's what they are afraid of. They have been working for 20 years to outrun demographics. People who are not from Georgia will do not know we used to be a blue state. We had a, a we had Democratic governors like Zell Miller and Roy Barnes. Um, 2006, Thurber Baker and, uh, and Michael Thurman won statewide. Thurber Baker got 60% of his uh, the vote nearly uh, in 2006 when he ran for re-election. What happened? 2010, Republicans won a majority in the House and the Senate, and they controlled reapportionment. And then they gerrymandered their way into a uh, constitutional majority in the House and the Senate and all constitutional officers. But we haven't had, we, until Warnock and Ossoff, we had not had a Democrat elected statewide since 2006 in the state, 14 years between those elections. And that's because gerry, um, gerrymandering. We are a state that is 35% African American, 15% Latino, 6% Asian, 52% women, with one of the largest LGBTQIA PK plus populations in the country, in addition to the number of transplants from around the country to come to Atlanta for the music industry and the film industry, we are a blue state masquerading as a purple state. And Republicans and Tea Partiers and MAGAs and Trumpites understand that the only way to win the fight is to change the rules. Reverend Jackson says often that when the score is public, the rules are fair, that we win. But it's only when they have a slanted playing field that are able to take over. And George is a microcosm of what goes on nationally. Remember, Republicans have won the popular vote in presidential elections 
One time in the last 30 years, George W. Bush in 2004 won the popular vote. Before that, it was his daddy, Daddy Bush, in 1988 was the last time Republicans won the popular vote. Right now, Republican senators represent about 41 million fewer people than Democratic senators do right now. And in fact, 15 Republican senators rep represent about 38 million people, which is less than the two Democratic senators that represent the state of California. So they're not trying to win on, on appealing to the masses in this country. They're they're not trying to win on being the party of the future, the party of ideas, the party of uh, moving people forward. They are trying to win on white resentment. They're trying to win on white fear. And the best way to do this is to suppress and reduce the number of people who are able to vote. Now, on the bright side with this legislation, my friend uh, James Woodall, president of the state NAACP, testified on it uh, earlier today, is more than likely unconstitutional and will be struck down. However, this is part of a suite of legislation introduced here in this state, uh, including trying to make the secretary of state no longer in an elected position, but rather appointed by the legislature, uh, attempts to change any uh, any changes in the rules for elections, mm. taking that power away from the state and local election boards, investing that in the state legislature, anything that can be done to reduce the power and the strength of the black vote in this state is what is being done. So this is why that federal, um, that federal oversight is so necessary. Because all of this has happened since the Shelby v. Holder decision in 2014, now that we don't have preclearance with the Justice Department. None of this would even be legal prior to that Shelby decision. So it's important for us to fight for this on the federal level. I don't give a damn what they have to do in the Senate. I don't care if you have to uh, uh, bribe, beg, and steal to get that John Lewis voting rights act passed. It has to get passed. It is imperative for the future of the democracy because we we got had a nice inauguration. Uh, you know, it was wonderful. It was fun. We we you know, beat the bushes and walked all over the 159 counties to win those two Senate races. That whole time, Republicans were plotting and scheming on how to return to power. And because of that, we cannot rest. And you can't be tired yet. It's time to continue to fight and push it through to the end. We're already on the right side of history. We're already on the right side of the issues. We're already on the right side of the poll numbers. What we have to do is now get on the right side of the law to ensure that it cannot rig the game against us. All right. Any final comments for Monique or Scott before we move forward? I, I, I had one. I just wanted to echo. I thank you, Robert, for bringing up uh, just the history of Georgia, because sometimes I think people don't know their state's history. My home state, Texas, has a similar history in that we were blue, 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 blue. We are a blue state that has had a really bad 25 years. But before that, you know, you look at the history of governors, you look at the Senate, we're the home state of Barbara Jordan. We're the home state of Lyndon B. Johnson, we're the home state of Ann Richards, uh, and people who are either young or ignorant or both don't know the true character of their own state or territory mm -hmm. or region. And so we end up thinking we are powerless mm -hmm. when we are not, when we right now actually are going against type. We're going against culture. We're going against our own kind of mores uh, and have to return to them. And I think sometimes when you do, as Robert just did, remind us of who we are, then we feel more empowered to come back to our center and stand up for ourselves. Scott. Georgia, nothing much to add other than let's not forget about Senator Nunn, a great uh, defense hawk and uh, Democrat from the state of Georgia, Democratic senator as well. All right. We're going to move on. We're going to go to a break. Stay tuned. When you 
think about the fact that 2043, we are going to be a nation that's majority people of color. I really focus on this a lot on television, on radio, in my speeches. That, but that my focus is, is trying to prepare us to have demographic power while also having educational, economic power at the same time. Because there's nothing worse than having demographic numbers, but then you still don't have that economic power, that political power, and education power. Well, you know, you and I, and I think most people know and understand that education is what we've got to impress on all of our people. We've got to help people to understand that if you want a decent quality of life, if you want the kind of quality of life where you are not having to worry about your food and your nutrition and you know being able to pay your bills or buy a house, then you've got to become educated. The more education you have, the larger the paycheck is. And of course, we've got to be involved in entrepreneurship, taking the talent that we have to create businesses. And there's a lot of opportunity for that. I'm Shantae Moore. Hi, I'm B.B. Winans. Hey, I'm Dolly Simpson. What's up? I'm Lance Gross, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. A disturbing new video has hit the internet showing yet another unarmed black teen being abused by law enforcement. Now, the Baton Rouge Police Department is investigating the arrest of a 13-year-old black boy who was put into a chokehold by one of its officers. As an audience of teenagers pled for the officer to stop, the video shows the officer lying on top of the boy with his arm firmly locked around his neck. Two, te two teenagers were arrested after the escapade and one was charged with battery of a police officer. Members of the community are requesting for the body cam footage to be made public, while Baton Rouge's mayor called the incident concerning. Take a look at this video. At this time, no disciplinary actions have been put forward for these officers. I, I want to bring my panel back in. Robert, I feel like, once again, we have these conversations time and time again <laughs> where we see an officer, whether, whether it be a resource officer, officer or an officer from, from the city's department, doing something to minority kids. Why do we continue to have these conversations? Uh, well, a few reasons, and, and, uh, and any longtime viewer of our uh, our Wednesday panel knows, I have a, a fictional young girl that I like to bring out in situations uh, like this named Lily White. Uh, so imagine that instead of being a 13-year-old black boy, that was a 13-year-old blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl in a cheerleading or a Girl Scout outfit 
when a headlock by a police officer. What would be America's response to that? Will we just be talking about that on Roland Martin Unfiltered, or would that be on the front page of the New York Times? Would that be on uh, leading every cable news um, broadcast? Would Nancy Grace and Laura Ingram be broadcasting live from the uh, scene? Oh, and let it have been a big black police officer choking out Lily White on the street. Uh, I'm pretty sure they would have helicoptered in uh, everybody to make sure that she was well taken care of, because I think they're still looking for Natalie Hollowell uh, till this day. We have to understand that in this country, you have a couple concepts working concurrently. You have the concept of age overestimation. That is um, a, uh, a sociological construct where white people, when they see a black child, do not see a black child. Uh, it's been shown in study after study. You know, we all know the doll test. Um, done by sociologists, the overestimation test, they'll show white people pictures of um, black children, you know, ages 8 till 15 years old, and then generally the responses will come back and they'll ask them, how old is this child or this person? They'll say 20, 25, 30 sometimes, depending on the child, particularly the darker the child, the older they think that they are. So often when police officers are, are interceding uh, with our children, just as we saw in the Tamir Rice case, they're not interceding with a child. They don't view them with the same way that they will see Lily White. They see them as a large, aggressive black man who needs to be subdued, uh, the same way those first Dutchmen who got off that boat in West Africa saw the, Man uh, the Mandinka tribe and figured out they need to fight these dudes off. That's what they are seeing when they see our young black boys, and they feel they need to choke them and fight them. Also, we have to deal with the concept of overcriminalization. White kids can just have a fight and just go home to their parents, and then they talk about the fight. And that's all that happens. And guess what? If the cops come, they'll say, hey, don't be out here fighting. And they'll send them home to their parents. Black kids get put in chokeholds. They get put into the back of police cars. They get handcuffs put on them. They get into the criminal justice system. They get put into alternative schools and then get fed into the uh, school-to-prison pipeline uh, going forward. So something like a shoplifting case or a uh, or schoolyard fight now turns into a Class C felony on their record, which prevents them from applying to law school in 15 years. So we have to overall look at the way the system looks at young African-Americans Amer and then normalize being black in this country so that your blackness itself is not seen as a uh, uh, an imprimatur of evil in some kind of way. You might as well have a Hydra logo or uh, an Al-Qaeda sticker on sometimes to these officers when they see your black skin. So until we can address this implicit bias within policing, we'll continue to have these issues. It's going to take training. It's going to take a recognition of the problem because while you hear whenever you talk about these things, even if you talk to the officers, they'll be sincere and say, well, I'm not racist. I don't have a racist bone in my body. I got a black dog at home. So how can I be racist? <laughs> in reality, what you have to uh, understand is breaking down implicit bias in the system is the only way to pre prevent these things from happening going forward. And like you're saying, Robert, normalizing blackness, which is something that should be a given, but it's something that needs to happen. And of course, you mentioned the case of Tamir Rice and those officers simply said they thought he was an adult. They thought that Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy, was a man. But we see this time and time again where young African Americans in school or outside of school are being targeted by officers. And after what took place with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the protests here in this nation around the world, uh, authorities in schools here in the nation have decided to try to remove officers from school. But this wouldn't have mattered for this case with this young man. So, Scott, what do you have to say to what, Rob, what Robert said there? Well, I agree with Robert, but, but it, it's deeper than that. They don't see us. They don't see us as, as human beings. They treat dogs, <laughs> laws, 
dogs better than they treat young black men and yep. women. They don't see us. Because if you saw me as a young black man or young black woman, nine years old, 13 years old, you wouldn't, you saw me as a child. You wouldn't be putting me in a chokehold and making out like uh, I've got a gun and I'm a threat to your life as a police officer. Who are we giving guns and badges to? How come we're not doing psychological evaluations at the training level, at the cadet level, to see whether you are racist or whether you escalate versus de-escalate, whether you want to be a police officer for the wrong reason? And then do that on an annual basis. Find money to do that. Because as long as you don't see me as human, as long as you don't see me as a law-abiding citizen, as long as you don't see me as having a mental health episode, right? You're just going to keep applying force because you got to choose police officers who aren't like that. Because Tennessee v. Garner says you can't use deadly force on a nonviolent fleeing felon and we continue to see these videos. It's not the laws. You can pass whatever law you want until the police and who you hire and who has a gun and a badge and has judgment on whether to use deadly force or de-escalation measures, you're going to continue to see black men and women killed and abused and brutalized by black by um, by police officers. It's just a fact. I guarantee you. Next month, maybe next week, we're going to be talking about more video of more police officers abusing more black people. Not just in the south; it'll be in the north, the east. The West, and we're talking about passing laws, and I guess that gets you accountability. But until you fix who you're putting on these police forces, right? Until you fix the police unions, they won't see us. And Scott, and as long as they don't see us, they're going to kill us and abuse us. And I agree with you, Scott. I mean, to your point, they'd have to get out an entire system, right? A system, as we know, is extremely corrupt. And there have been people who have said the same thing as you said, where there needs to be a vetting process. Let's see how racist these people really are or what their intentions are when it comes to being on the force. But I, I've heard authorities say that if they were to do that, they'd have nobody on the force. So essentially, they're, well, afraid, of they're afraid of losing the officers that they do have at the expense of people who look like you and me. Go ahead, Scott. Well, that sounds like a personal problem and a cop-out. Because if you're not going to do that, then you must have accountability. If you use deadly force inappropriately, if you don't turn on your camera as a police officer, you ought to be disciplined. You ought to be, your, your paycheck ought to be docked. Your, your pension ought to be at risk. You ought to be uh, in danger of losing your job. If these police officers are very serious about cleaning up their ranks, and I'm not just talking about the bad actors. I don't want to hear about bad actors. Because if you know you work with a bad actor and you don't report them, you're complicit in their bad acting. Yep. And so until we decide that we're going to clean up these police forces, then it's just going to continue. You watch. Next month, we're going to be talking about another situation. Unfortunately, you're probably right there. Now, Monique, we have you back. Uh, is there anything you want to say in regards to this story? I'm sick of it. I don't, I don't, I don't have anything. I agree. Uh, Con Content-wise, <laughs> that 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 can be added that hasn't already been said, uh, except maybe this. Uh, you know, when we talk about 
just the um, dehumanization of the black body. Uh, I think yeah. I am concerned about now the role that all of this footage and all of these videos that turn millions of people at a time into eyewitnesses. I, I am concerned about the role that that is having in further dehumanization because they they fear and threaten are threatened by our presence to begin with. Uh, but now people are used to seeing us choked. They're used to seeing us shot mm -hmm. in the back. They're used to seeing us drowned. They're used to seeing us body slammed. Um, and while I understand the necessity because it's not enough to have eyewitnesses when it's black folks, you have to have a million witnesses mm -hmm. who march on, on, on Congress and, and march down main street in order for anything to be done. Uh, but, but I am bothered by the other effects of this constant loop that we now have of violence against us. Uh, Robert, before we move on, is there anything you want to say? I think, Scott, you were trying to sneak in there. Well, well, I, I'll, one thing, I'll just piggyback on what Scott says, and that's why I never understand what the police officers and the unions in particular, they always say, well, it's just a couple of bad apples. But play that saying out all the way. Nobody says uh, one bad apple, don't worry about it, things will be fine, it's just one they say one bad apple will spoil the bunch. Mm -hmm. So if you're not rooting out that one bad apple, it spreads, it metastasizes, it becomes entrenched in your department, entrenched in the, uh, mm -hmm. in the police unions, entrenched in the way that we teach policing in this country. So much so there wasn't, but a couple years ago, President Trump was saying, rough them up a little bit when you put them in the car, don't cradle their heads. That's the way that many people see themselves. If you go into many of the police chat groups, and we've had to do so in discovery for uh, police... Uh, uh, violence cases here in, in Georgia before, they all are obsessed with superheroes and comic book characters and the Punisher. They see themselves as being the thin blue line to subjugate and keep these black communities down because uh, if you don't, then they'll start spilling over and interrupting the white communities. We're going through that right here in Atlanta where people are losing their minds because, oh no, the black people are starting to rap, rob folks in Lennox and in Buckhead and in Sandy Springs. Been robbing folks in the bluff for 30 years, been robbing folks on uh, uh, down in the squats for 30 years. They don't care about that there because they see their job as a thin blue line to separate the wild and uh, wild poor people from the rich folks and their domestic tranquility. And until you root those bad apples out of the bunch, is going to poison the entire basket. Mm -hmm. Scott, final words. And you see that nine-year-old? If you run back to that video, you could hardly see this little nine-year-old. He wasn't a big kid. And this cop is on top of him, choking him. You can hardly see the kid. Mm -hmm. he, he, he couldn't have weighed more than 70 pounds, maybe. And they, when they don't see you, they do things like that to you. Mm -hmm. Oh, looks like we lost Scott there. All right, we're going to move on. We're going to go to Illinois now, where the governor has signed a new criminal justice reform bill that will eliminate the cash bail system by 2023, making the state the first ever to abolish the discriminatory practice in the country. Now, this new law, which was pushed by the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus, also mandates that every police officer in the state wear a body camera by 2025. So joining me now to discuss this further is Kim Fox, Cook County State's attorney. Kim... Uh, Kim, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. Now, 
This cash bill, we know it, it disproportionately impacts minorities and the lower class. So instead of having suspects post money to be freed from jail, judges will use a risk assessment to determine whether a suspect should be released or not. So can you just walk us through, if you're familiar, with what that risk assessment system could possibly look like? So we have a version of that here in Cook County, which encompasses Chicago, where our pretrial services will look at uh, the defendant's background, um, any prior convictions, any prior um, warrants that he had not shown up or she has not shown up to court as, is this person working, going to school? What is, what is, who is the totality of who they are? And based on their risk, um, then they will be released without um, condition. Or if they have an elevated risk, there may be some additional conditions that they have to meet, um, like meeting with a pretrial officer more regularly, maybe some type of uh, preventative treatment. Um, but in essence, it is not a determination just based on how much money you can post uh, to get out of jail. So it's it's geared to be a more holistic approach of looking at defendants and not the overly simplified approach of assessing a monetary value. Now, in your opinion, why do you believe that the governor made this move to eliminate cash bail now? You know, the governor made a commitment uh, last year that he was going to look at eliminating cash bail. There was a groundswell of support for this by activists and advocates for years. The In Money Bond Coalition has been pushing for this. My office, the state's attorney's office, have been pushing for this. And in the wake of what happened with George Floyd and the fact that, you know, we have people like Kyle Rittenhouse, who is an exemplification of what's wrong with the cash bail system. Here's a, a, a boy who crosses the border um, with the long arm, shoots and kills two people and is walking the streets today because someone was able to pay his bail. While at the same time, there are people in jails across the country, across this state who were charged with nonviolent offenses and can't post something as little as $500 to get out. And so I think the governor recognizing those forces at play and really having a true commitment to justice said, if not now, then when? Um, and the Legislative Black Caucus should be applauded uh, for saying that now is the time. So it's going to take about two years before this is implemented. And also in the bill, uh, the governor is saying that police are mandated to wear their body cameras, but that won't happen until about 2025. So we're in 2021. Why is it going to take so long for that to be a thing? You know, in Chicago, which is our largest police department in the state, they already have body cameras. But the, Illinois is a vast state. It's it's pretty rural. And so I think the legislation was recognizing that there are some portions of the state that accessibility and the funding uh, for police cameras may be more difficult than some of our larger municipalities. And so I think there was enough runway in there so that we can make sure that people have the equipment, can afford the equipment, are trained on the equipment, and the equipment is up. But here in Chicago, Chicago and Cook County, uh, they have a body camera. And this legislation also is not even just having body camera, that there are penalties attached in you, when you don't turn it on. Um, there are assumptions that are made when people who are wearing body camera, uh, body cameras aren't turning them on in instances of police accountability or misconduct. So what are the consequences if an officer weren't to turn on their body camera? 
you know, one of the things that they could be subject to is prosecution, uh, to a felony prosecution, if it is determined that their camera was not turned on because uh, they did not want to show uh, what was happening in that instance. And so uh, the penalties are, are pretty swift uh, or stiff, which is why we saw so much opposition from law enforcement groups. So, as you're saying, yes, there's a lot of opposition that's coming from law enforcement. There's a lot of opposition that's coming from lawmakers. And they're basically saying that this bill will hurt law enforcement and it will force officers to essentially leave the force. They're saying it's just not fair to officers to have to do these things. What do you say to that? I say that's absolutely ridiculous. It's, it's fear-mongering. You know, one of the things that has been heartening about this is the collective effort from community organizers, legislators, and the governor to put this bill on the, on the, on the governor's desk. What has been disheartening is the fear-mongering, um, oftentimes soaked in racial tropes, um, that has happened um, from some of those who've opposed this. This is about simple police accountability. These are things that... It, should be common sense, that you don't turn off your body-worn camera when you have one assigned to you, that you don't use chokeholds, you know, that you don't uh, charge people with resist resisting arrest when there's no underlying offense. These are not things that are meant to undermine the credibility of law enforcement. In fact, it's supposed to bolster it. Because if people don't have faith and trust in the credibility of our institutions, then they will resort to street justice. That's when we are less safe. When people don't trust the system, we are less safe. This is built to have credibility rebuilt into that system. And as you know, a lot of minority communities just don't trust law enforcement, and they do have good reason for that. Now... We know that in Washington, D.C., New York, and New Jersey, they've adopted some form of uh, cash bail and kind of like eliminating it or limiting its use in these regions. But do you think that this is something that other states are going to follow suit with? You know, we certainly followed the New Jersey model and the time that we're putting into it in eliminating cash bail starts in 2023. The time that we're putting into it now, making sure that we have the resources available um, to these folks who will no longer be detained pre-trial to make sure that their needs are met and the community safety is met, um, is something that I'm really confident about. But we're looking at the New Jersey model. Things that have worked in New York or didn't work or in places like California are things that we're very mindful of. And I'm very confident, based on those lessons learned, that we have a very strong bill here. All right, Kim, I'm going to open this up to my panel, uh, panel members, Scott, Monique, or Robert. If you guys have a question for Kim, go ahead and ask her. Certainly. Kim, I, uh, this is Attorney Patillo. I did have this question. So I'm on the uh, executive board for the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and we've seen in some jurisdictions uh, that have eliminated cash bond that we've seen many abuses of the risk assessment system, uh, where it's skewed towards individuals. You know, some of the questions you asked during the risk assessment, uh, what are your ties to the community? Do you have a job? Do you own property? Um, uh, do you have the resources to help scan? Those sorts of things kind of skew towards people who are more economically advantageous and often who are uh, not part of the African-American community. Uh, what safeguards are in place to prevent abuse of risk, risk assessments in a similar way uh, that abuses have been made of the cash bond system? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things is we've recognized that there's some inherent biases in these risk assessment tools that we've been able to see as these tools have been rolled out over the past several years. Here in Cook County, since 2017, we've been using the risk assessment tool and have shrunk our jail population by about 40 percent from 2015 to, to last year. And so it is tweaking that. It is making sure that we know that you know, jobs uh, or access to employment may be very different on different parts of the city, and that should not weigh more um, than other factors. And so we're looking at the tool we have. We've been able to tweak it and see its utilization now. And again, in the course of the next couple years, making sure that we have a tool that's right size. It's not perfect. You know, algorithms and science are, are no you know, not the be all end all answer, but it is one piece of this and judges having the discretion uh, to be able to probe, I think is one of the things that will be different than where we've seen it in the past. Scott. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kim, this is Scott Bolden, uh, probably Scott. born in Joliet, Illinois, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my dad's a retired judge in Will County and I get back to see him. So Always been a big fan of yours. And um, my question is about judges, right? What have the judges been saying or what's been their response to this legislation? Because uh, while I have not looked deeply at the legislation, it would suggest that you're taking some of their discretion and authority away. Or is that not the case? I mean, I think what we're taking away is the one tool that judges have heavily relied upon, which is assigning a, a, a monetary value and not necessarily evaluating risk. Um, judges here in Cook County, for example, have been using this modified risk assessment tool since 2017. And we've seen an increase of people who've been released on um, recognizance bonds, you know, signature bonds, uh, because they recognize that not every defendant is the same. And so some of the feedback that we've gotten from people who've actually used the tool or been doing this um, has been positive. We've not seen an uptick in crime as we've done bail reform in Cook County. They've been able to counter that narrative. But this does, you know, the algorithm, the risk assessment tool is just one piece. The judge's discretion, a judge will have to make a finding on the record if he's going to hold someone in custody um, without bond. You know, you don't get to just right. make these decisions um, and not have to explain yourself. And so I right. think that affords them that ability. Yeah. Thank you. Monique? Uh, Ma'am, you know <laughs> I'm a fan. So I'm fanning out a little bit. I just want to say first, before I ask my question, wow, however proud I am of you and are so many just black and brown girls in America, especially those of us who come through the halls of law school and look at the way that you have stood up for your people, how you have done your job, how whether it has been feast or famine, whether it's been hot or cold through fire, you have stayed true to your principles. I applaud you. I am rooting for you. Many of us are rooting for you. So my question is, what is it that people can do? whether it's your constituency or whether it's kind of the broader constituency of all of those who are rooting from afar that can make your job and the job of prosecutors in your position easier or at least less hard to do when you really are on some uphill battles pulling down all of these old ways and systems of doing things. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, it's a mutual admiration society. 
Um, I think it's what you do, Monique. I, I There's so much misinformation that is put out about justice reform. You know, there are people who are entrenched to the old way of doing things, um, where incarceration and not dealing with root causes of violence, with being overly punitive, um, engaging in wars on drugs or wars, you know, on violence in our communities has just been completely disrupted. I think what we need for people, particularly in the Black community, is to know that they have a stake in this. I'm only in this seat, you know, I won re-election because Black people showed up at the ballot box and said, we don't want to go back, that we believe in restorative justice, that we believe that the criminal justice system is overly punitive. We understand what mass incarceration means and we're not going to fall for this. And so what has been incredibly helpful to me in some of the noise that is, has come, because I've been attacked, you know, the Fraternal Order of Police, um, I'm public enemy number one, the former president, um, the former attorney general, you know, called me out. Um, it is the engagement of our communities on justice issues, not just in the wake of somebody's death. You know, we rally, you know, very, very hard in the wake of tragedy, but this has to be a sustained commitment um, to making sure that we have prosecutors and defense attorneys um, and judges who are aligned with our values. And for so long, we've just given up on prosecutors because we haven't seen ourselves in these roles. We need more, you know, Black prosecutors, and not just Black, but those who come from the communities that are impacted by our choices. That's how we can help. We have to keep a sustained energy and effort around justice issues and local stakeholders in the in the race. Amen. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much, Kim Fox, Cook County State's Attorney. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back right after this. I grew up wanting a lot of activities in my neighborhood that was in close proximity. You know, my mom wasn't always there, so I didn't always have a ride to places. And, you know, you want to be able to walk down the street and get to something that's some food for your soul in your community. You know, you know, I relish, you know, the days of being in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and when I had to go out there and live with my people, they had actually black-owned corner stores. My uncle owned one. My Uncle Donald owned a cleaners and a, um, and a corner store. And he, he, um, he a city councilman down there now. And it's like, that was big for him. He was like, yo, man, you got to own something. Got to own something. His wife was named Louise. It always killed me. I, I used to call him George Jefferson. His name was Donald. Because <laughs> his wife was named Louise. And that was big to see my family own and stuff. And it just cultivated what my dad told me. My dad, he's not a lot, he didn't say a lot of good stuff, but the three things that he did give me, play chess so you'd be a thinker. You don't have to work for nobody. He told me that, I said, you don't have to work for nobody. The same energy that you put into, for somebody else, you can put that same energy into it for yourself. And then he'll go into his bill. See, they talking about black people don't want to work. Black people just don't want no job. You know what I'm We don't work for nobody else. We want our own stuff. That's it. Give me my own so I come to work every day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's going, he going to his own spiel. And, like, I don't work for anybody. Hi, I'm Kim Burrell. Hi, I'm Carl Payne. Hey, everybody. This is Sherry Shepard. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. <laughs> 
To date, 503,000 people have died from COVID and 28.2 million people have contracted the virus. Last night, House and Senate leaders led a moment of silence on the steps of the U.S. Capitol to remember those Americans who have lost their lives. Take a look. All right, you know what time it is. I'm white. I got you, Illegally selling water without a permit? On my property. Whoa! Hey! Hey, number! Give me your I'm uncomfortable. Take a look at this exchange that happened in Maine between a white woman and a white man over the use of the N-word. Hey man, I, I heard your conversation in there and you might want to have an outwardly racist conversation in a more private place. Outwardly? Yeah, I heard you say the, the N-word multiple Oops. times. That's just not cool, dude. You don't like that word? No, because it's been, it's, it's not, it's not appropriate. It's a slur. Well, you call it a slur, but... My my uh, my conversation, which I'm hoping to have with you, is why would it be a slur okay for them to say? But not well, there's me, a lot of people. No, there's I'm a lot of people in the black community who don't like that word either. And I appreciate that. Um, but a lot of black people died with that name being yelled at them, and a, and lot, a lot of people. So I'm cu I'm curious, what has what have white people what names have white people been called as they've been hauled up trees as they've been what? hauled up trees and lynched oh i have no idea exactly cutting somebody off why do you need to use the n-word you're ignorant for a teacher. why do you need to use the n-word i'm going to explain it to you why you shut up long enough why do you spots. need to use the n-word i tried talking to you sorry why do you ignorant. need to use the n-word i'm sorry i used to think that you were half a uh, why do you need to use the n-word there's no use for you why do you need to use the n-word because i can't because you can. Because I can. Why are you filming me? And you can do that. Why too. do you need to use the N-word? Why do you need to use the N-word? Why do you need to use the N-word? Because I can. There it is. Robert, I'm going to start with you. Why? Why does this guy or this woman essentially have to justify or even explain to this white man why it's not okay for him to use the N-word? Man, look, shout out to Tyrell or Jamal or whoever her black boyfriend from college's name was, because <laughs> that woman is an ally. And, like, what, whatever he had her in that dorm room watching Malcolm X movies, listening to, you know, Jay Dilla and everything, he probably got a kente cloth at home, daishiki, got the adinkra symbol, all that stuff. So shout out to whoever, you know, made her an ally. But uh, let's understand, these are this is the only way that you start rooting these people out. Because when you, as a black person, say, says something to this white guy, they say, oh, you're playing the race card. It takes another white person to approach them in whiteness. And without all of the uh, the aggression and anger that goes with it, to approach them in whiteness, and then they can understand and have a civil conversation. So this is something for them to work out amongst themselves. I think that if you want to be a real ally, it's not enough just to turn your 
your Instagram or your Facebook picture to a black square uh, every time that a black person gets shot, but actually to do things such as this, to work your way, uh, to start working through the community. And that's why you start weeding it out over the course of a couple generations. It's not going to happen in a day, in an hour, in a week, but over the course of a couple generations, we see these things uh, reducing and eventually going away. Uh, a perfect example, if you want to look at the F word, as it relates to the LGBTQIAPK plus community, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, it was in music, it was in movies, it was in comedy. Today, it is gone. Uh, if you look at the way that we talk uh, talk about Jewish Americans in this country, there used to be anti-Semitic slurs and blazing saddles and all sorts of other parts of pop culture. Today, it is gone because they worked it out of the community. And we have to do the exact same thing for the N-word. Scott? Yeah, you know, I'm usually cracking up at this segment, but this was a pretty serious segment and a teaching moment. I tell my colleagues uh, at my law firm and my colleagues that don't look like me that given this racial reckoning, given this racial heightened racial consciousness, I don't want you to be anti-racist, right? Because no one's going to admit that they're racist. I want you to be anti-racism. I want you to stand up and say, this is wrong and weed it out and address it in whatever way you feel comfortable addressing it so we can weed out systemic and generational racism, right? So nobody's born with a racist gene. No one believes that they're racist, and yet generational systemic racism continues to self-perpetuate in our society. But these moments, uh, like that woman took up the mantle and as an ally said, why do you have to use that word? And in the end, what he told her was really because white privilege says I can use it, right? And he was unapologetic about it. You see, racism rears its ugly head in a despairing impact way. It can be the Proud Boys, but most of the time it's rooted in white privilege, right? And, and, and I'm not letting people that don't look like me off the hook, but it manifests itself a lot in these, these moments. And we need black people, white people, brown people as allies to stand up and say enough is enough because families are teaching new races every day. Environment where people that don't look like me that they grow up in, and they're being taught racism and to use that word. And unless someone like a white ally doesn't stand up or stands up and says, no, that's wrong, then it's gonna continue to be generational and racism is going to rear its ugly head at, at all generations going forward. This is the moment that we have a chance to stop it. All those white people and brown people that were out there protesting George Floyd, you know, I applaud it because racism is not a black issue. Let's be serious. It may affect us negatively 400 years from slavery to now, but it's not a black issue. It's America's sin. And to move past and get to the promise of America, of freedom, justice, and equality, it's just not going to be up to me and Monique and Robert and you and Roland Martin. We're going to need everybody to say this is wrong. We don't need any silent partners anymore. And so now is the time. And so I applaud our white ally in that video, but I need millions of white allies to stand up, regardless of in 2043, we're going to be a country of color. I need everyone to stand up to not that word, 
but to, to racism. And Scott, to your point, uh, I was covering the George Floyd protests last year, and there were a lot of white people who came out mm -hmm. to protest. And a lot of them that I spoke with, they were like, we didn't know racism was this big of a deal, or we didn't know that systemic racism within the police force was this much of an issue. And instead of just protesting, they came there to learn, to educate right. themselves and to educate those who look like them as well. But you know what they also said? If you were out there or if you were doing political commentary or if you were listening and reading, what they were telling you, which was even more profound and, and a blessing or an ally, is that this is not my America. As young white Americans would say, this is not my America. I don't want my America to be this. I want the promise for everyone. I want it to be for everyone. And that's the beginning. It's not the end. We got to have those courageous conversations. We got to make sure that people are tolerant but accountable, right? And we got to listen and love and forgive and a path forward together, arm in arm. But that's where it starts by that white woman standing up and saying no to use of that N word. It's a great example. Definitely. Monique, what are your thoughts? Yes. She definitely uh, showed allyship in that moment. Uh, one of the things that I post all the time on Instagram when things like this happen is get your folks, you know, get mm -hmm. your own right. folks. I check my folks. I might not do it publicly, uh, but but surely if I disagree yeah. with something, uh, Scott is on here, he can tell you there will be a conversation and it will be good. It'll be fulsome. Um, and, and that's what we have to do. Correction begins at home. But what I also want to observe is she was the most um, successful candidate for that conversation. Mm -hmm. Not just her whiteness, but her womanhood, which makes for white womanhood, which is the holy grail in the United States of America. Because see, that man could have been challenged by pretty much anybody else and it go a completely different way. It could have escalated to physical violence, whether it was black man, black woman, white man, brown man, or woman. But here she was saying to somebody it was obvious she was kind of familiar with and he said that she was a teacher and she should have been smarter. I was listening to the conversation. So maybe they knew each other, but that's where the power is. When you mm -hmm. stand up in your circle and you use the opportunity that you have when you have it, claim your own power and authority over situations and circumstances and people and, and teach and correct. And I don't want to assume like my brother Robert did that she was under the influence of some prior, um, black relationship <laughs> and I don't want to assume that she had some good black girlfriend and I don't want to assume that it was you know she was raised on the other side of the tracks with the rest of us she may have just been a woman who took the time to read and learn and understand her environment and maybe she uh -huh. got the spirit of living God on the inside of her I don't know it could be a lot of different things but whatever she's doing we need more of that one of the reasons black folks get so exhausted is because we study trying to explain the same stuff over and over again to people who long since should have understand well, if they don't understand it, I'm tired. Let's just step up. She's doing a good job. Amen. And, and I, Go ahead, Scott. I, I, all I was going to say, and I, I would like to make an official motion to take uh, Candace Owens' uh, invite to the barbecue and give it to this white woman. <laughs> uh, because she's been more of an ally to us than some of these other black folks who are in the media speaking down to us. So uh, if she's invited to the barbecue, I'll make brisket. <laughs> 
I love it. All right, any final yeah. thoughts, guys, before I let you go? I, I have one, one quick final thought. You know, it, it's, it's incumbent upon us, too, as black people. You know, I, I sit around and smoke cigars and drink tequila with my friends, and if they use the F word in connection to uh, uh, gay people, if they make a slur against our Jewish brothers and sisters, you know, it's up to us to stand up and say no to that. That's not allowed, or you're mm -hmm. not going to use that around me because it can be just as hurtful and just as harmful. Since one of my daughters is gay, I certainly don't allow that to go on at my home or in social settings because in my mind, they're talking about one of mine, flesh and blood. So it's very personal to me. But I've got to be affirmative and assertive to them more than just once and say, don't use those terms around me and you shouldn't use them generally. And they say, oh, Scott, we're just talking, right? It's just us here. No. It's no longer accepted for black people, white people, brown people, gay people, Jewish people to traffic in those types of uh, tropes and, and racially offensive language. We got to get away with it because words and language matter, especially the ones we use, given what black people have been through for 400 years. And so I'm committed to that corrective behavior. I am. And I, 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 I do it quite a bit. And I'm doing less of it because my friends and family know it's not to be tolerated when I'm around. Monique, any final thoughts? Amens and amens. All righty there. Well, thank you so much, Robert, Scott, and Monique. You guys are free to go. That is it for Roland Martin Unfiltered. Roland will be back tomorrow. But before you change that channel, be sure to donate to Roland Martin Unfiltered. You can donate using Zelle, Cash App, and Venmo. And I'm Ashley Banks, so be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Ashley M. Banks. And in the words of Roland Martin, holla! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.